As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Gladwell. Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Starkville is now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long. And you know what? Every Tuesday, that means us. So I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic. Joined once again by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, Professor, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. Doug, here we go, my friend. Last week of the season got me thinking, what was your most memorable last week of the season as a player? I, I, I would think it would be 2003. If I remember this right, your team, the Cubs, was still a half game behind the Astros with a week to go, so that had to be pretty <laughs> epic. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely on the baseball side, it's it's all 2003. You know, looking back, that was my only postseason appearance in major league level um, outside of you know Puerto Rico with some some good runs. But yeah, 2003, as you know, I was traded right at the trade deadline, and when I got to Chicago, we were 500. I mean, we it was no guarantee we were going to make it. Had a lot of veteran players. You know, like Eric Karras and Tony Womack, and we kind of came together. And then, as we got to the end of the season, you know, it, was, it was a tight race. And I remember actually going to ESPN Zone. I don't know if they exist anymore in Chicago. <laughs> and uh, I we I watched the um, the Astros play the Brewers, and Royce Clayton was a friend of mine on the Brewers, and they beat up on the Astros. That kind of was a big difference maker in us ultimately winning the division. So I left them all these voicemails like, thank you, man. I appreciate all your help over there. <laughs> and uh, so, but I was so cool when we did finally clinch because 
I just remember running in the outfield with the flag and just everybody wow. just pouring out. And obviously, you know, the, the Cubs just winning the division. That was such a big deal. And it was it was a euphoric feeling. I mean, just the piles of humanity, celebrations, videos. And that's that will always stay with me because it, I remember talking, I'm not sure it was Womack or Grudzelanek, one of these cats just about, wow, this is what it feels like to celebrate all the time. Like, this is a feeling you want. And we celebrate every milestone, clinching, division, <laughs> winning the DS, whatever. And I remember it came up recently with the Giants about whether Kapler and the Giants should celebrate, you know, when you win a clinching. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. They don't come around a lot. And when you have a lot of futility in the postseason throughout your career, you absolutely have to enjoy it at every level. So that that will always stay with me. And Dusty Baker was such a great ambassador to make sure it was even more fun than necessary. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I love those moments. Love when I'm in a ballpark where the home team wins something. Just the, the feeling that just rumbles through the place is unlike anything you experience anywhere else in your life. Uh, there's going to be some moments like that. Should be fantastic theater this week. Um, but you know what, Doug, since we're close to the end of our first full season in two years, uh, we've got a lot to reflect on. Uh, one of those things <laughs> is all the minor league rule change experiments we've been mm -hmm. talking about all year long. So we have an awesome guest to reflect on what those changes mean for the future of the game. Uh, Raul Abanez will join us in a few minutes. Uh, you know, Raul's one of the people overseeing these experiments for Major League Baseball. And he's one of the most insightful people in the game. So really looking forward to that. But before we get to Raul Abanez, let's do a few quick hits. First off, the Cardinals, man. Holy <laughs> crap. Uh, 16 in a row. Stan Musial's Cardinals never won 16 in a row. Tony La Russa and Albert Pujols' Cardinals never won 16 in a row. Whitey Herzog and Ozzie Smith Cardinals never won 16 in a row. Ten teams this year haven't won 16 games in any month. <laughs> but the Cardinals have won 16 in a row in September, which is just amazing. Um, so here, here's my question to you. How would you describe what it's like to be in the midst of a streak like that? Uh, I, I know you never played on a team that won 16 in a row, so not exactly like that, but you know what I mean? And, and more important, I think, what's it like when a streak like this ends? Because for the Cardinals, that's what's going to matter, because when it ends, the next thing on their agenda is October. Yeah, I, I kind of use the word sort of, you always think of baseball in this almost spiritual, reverent kind of way. And so it feel it's like ordained. You do feel like things are going your way and you you do develop a kind of belief system around it. Like, yeah, we're, you know, we're kind of supposed to win this. We feel like things are in our hands. It's sort of like personally, the year I hit 325, if I made an out the first at bat, I felt very confident I was getting a hit the next at bat. It just felt like you were just a step ahead. And some of it is that strategic feeling of I know what they're about to do, and and everything you're you're choosing is is sort of working out well. The pitch you choose, the approach you have at the plate, the signs call, and yeah, maybe it is a, a bad bounce or a guy losing the ball in the sun or something like that. So they start to chain together. And baseball, you're always, excuse me, you're always at odds thinking about 
how can you get the baseball gods in your favor? <laughs> you always think there's some control in this. Now, whether it's superstition on sleeping with your bat or whatever t-shirt you're wearing is one thing, but there is a sense that you can figure it out and you can kind of get that magic formula that you say, okay, now I have it. And and when you do, and it starts to actually result in wins on the field or hits at the at the plate or striking everybody out, you start to think that that's something you could replicate, which of course is a complete illusion. <laughs> but <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and I, I just remember being on a call. It was a players' association call, and it was the year when the um, the A's won their whatever twenty in a row or twenty. What is it? Twenty one, something crazy. Yeah. And Tory Hunter was on the call. I think Tim Hudson or someone. It was a giant conference call. And Tori was like, "Hey, do you do you guys plan to lose any time this season? It's, it's kind of time to lose." <laughs> and uh, I think the Twins actually broke the streak. But um, uh, so it, it, it is. It's a great feeling now. And as you mentioned, it does end, and that will create a whole wash of doubt over you of like if you offended the baseball gods. But um, you try to get back on the saddle and get start that one game winning streak. But the positive energy that comes from winning streaks turns a loss into. It's not a loss. You just have a zero game winning streak. That's just how you start to see things. And it's a great feeling. Yeah, I remember, uh, hey, that team that you ran into in 2003 was the Marlins. Hate to bring that up again. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I covered that. I, I saw that team so much in September and October. Um, and, like, after a while, they had that thing going where – they thought they were never going to lose. <laughs> no matter where they were, how far behind they were, what the situation was, pack Wrigley Field game, game six of the NLCS, they thought they were going to win. And, you know, there is something to that mindset that I know we can't quantify, but it's real. And we're going to find out if it, if it's going to be real for the Cardinals in October. Uh, another thing. You know, I don't have to tell you this, Doug. When you're hot, stuff happens that reminds you just how hot you are. And on Saturday at Wrigley Field, uh, that stuff happened to the Cardinals. It came in the form of one of the craziest rundowns ever. <laughs> and the 1-1. Ground ball. Goldie to the plate. Bodie is hung up between home and third. The tag by Arenado. They get that out. And now maybe two. Back to Tommy Edmond. He'll throw to third. It's a rundown. Molina. Bader is in it. DeYoung tags him out. And they get out of it. It's unbelievable. Bader is in it. <laughs> Who is this guy? I, yeah. I, Bader. Uh, yeah, the... Uh, I'm going to score that one if you're scoring at home during the podcast. I hope you're not. Three, two, five, four, two, eight, six. Uh, you know what I like to call those, Doug? Uh, those are phone number double plays. <laughs> Dial three, two, five, four, two, eight, six right now. Operators are standing by. <laughs> you know, Tim Kirkston actually used to try calling those numbers when one of those happened at a game that he was at and that always worked out well uh, no it didn't <laughs> it didn't anyway doug you played center field in the big leagues uh jerry getting mixed up in one of those rundowns since they don't normally actually run anybody down in the outfield for the center fielder to get dragged into it it's got to get crazy oh yeah well first of all i had the feeling and i saw this live that the cardinals 
could have turned infinite number of outs. That, that's <laughs> that was the feeling. Like it, they could have gone to four outs, five outs, six outs. It was just there was no stop. The entire team was in the infield. That was one. And I just kept waiting for generational players to appear. Like the, you go to Stan Musial, Lou Brock, you know, just people teleporting. It was like, you know, field of dreams of like the Cardinal. They were all on the field. Uh, walked, but, out of the, walked out of the Ivy instead of the cornfield. Yeah, just, just straight out of the Ivy. I mean, that was complete insanity. And uh, seeing Molina in catcher's gear, catch the ball as a cutoff man to the third baseman from first base and then running towards second base. So it's like, what is he even doing there? And then Bader, he throws to Bader. It was like, so I, I was impressed. I was actually impressed. Now, yeah. as a center fielder, you know, I took a lot of pride in defense, of course, but I also took a lot of pride on always being in motion, always going towards the ball. And center field is that kind of position where you're always following the ball. When you're in right field or left field, you have to think about where the ball might be thrown or the backup. So you, or you're running away from the play a little bit because you're aligning. But in center, you can play. You're just following the ball and the action. And that's what's so fun about it. So I, I had a couple plays where I ended up in the infield just, just as an emergency <laughs> uh, cutoff relay guy or rundown guy. And, uh, and so, yeah, one play I got to second base. And a runner was running from first to second. They threw me the ball. And I tried. actually had, got a chance to lay the tag down. Now he was safe. <laughs> But, uh, I, you know, it was funny to watch the face of my teammate throw to me and say, what are you doing here as he's throwing the ball, kind of looking? <laughs> and the runner kind of like completely confused as why the center fielder is tagging him. So um, that's the thing that, that Bader didn't have. He threw the ball immediately to get rid of it. Uh, but it's a lot more fun when you're tagging someone from from the outfield. So I figured with all the shifts and seeing Manny Machado catch fly balls in right field, why not have a center fielder <laughs> tag someone out at second base? You know, why not? Yeah, the uh, the center fielder gets a put out during a rundown. How does that that affect his range factor? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. All right. Well, we'll let somebody else smarter than us give us that answer. Uh, one more thing before we get to Raul Abanez, uh, I think we had a new chapter in the unwritten rule book after last week, and I don't know. Maybe you've read that chapter. It was. Blue Jays against Rays. Kevin Kiermaier slides into home plate. He looks down, and there in the dirt is the scouting card that <laughs> fell out of the catcher. It was Alejandro Kirk, I believe, his back pocket. So Kevin Kiermaier picks it up, takes it back to his dugout with him. Uh, Blue Jays were pleased, respond by drilling him in the back. All right, Doug. Who violated the unwritten rule book in that saga? Well, this is why the unwritten rule book is constantly evolving because, you know, you, you, when did you have scouting cards in your back pocket back in the 70s and 80s? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, no. The digital era has arrived. So, I, I, you know, you have to write them as you go. And it does. It did seem a little bit espionage-like to to take the card, especially when you know like 400 cameras on you. It's not like you're doing this in secret. So uh, you try to make it look like it. Like you know, I'm like, what are you doing? Everybody's watching this live. Uh, so uh, yeah. So I, that probably isn't the greatest etiquette vis-a-vis -vis what the Rays Rays were thinking about it. It's kind of like if you play football and you get a playbook and there's all these notices like, do not lose this. You you know, otherwise the other team can get it. If you're the Miami Dolphins and you, you know, you're a quarterback and you leave the playbook, that's kind of on you. Now, it just dropped out of his pocket. So I would think the etiquette would just be kind of leave it there and, you know, let them have it back. Obviously, the, 
the Rays took exception to that. So I think it's new territory. I think now that it's actually happened, that we're going to have to discuss whether that was the right course of act. Do you hit someone over stealing a card that you dropped? You know, is it theft? Is it espionage? You know, how does that work? Uh, I think we're in uncharted water here. So I think the baseball gods will chime in. And I'm using that a lot today because I think we are in a divine space of uh, rewriting the ship here. New unwritten rules. Let's figure it out. All new. Uh, you remember the Dodgers uh, one year tried putting little marks in the outfield and got in trouble for that? Yeah, spraying. So, and so- <laughs> yeah, so I, I I don't know where we're going with this. I, I just know a couple things. Uh, one, like, did they really have to drill him? I mean, really? Uh, the managers are best friends. Charlie, yes, was, yes. Charlie Montoya was here last week talking about <laughs> Kevin Cash. They talked it out. This wasn't going to happen again. Uh, but the other thing is uh, – Kevin Kiermeyer's alibi, not that good. (laughs) Like he said, I looked at, I looked down, I thought it was my card. (laughs) You understand that we have a hundred cameras in the park, right? So when you go back to the dugout and then you furtively try to slip it to one of your coaches, we can see this. Yes. Yes. Well, it's like the raccoon in New York, and like, yes, yeah, yeah. They they have to recognize the cameras are on you. You can't you can't really explain that one away. So no, you can try, but we don't have to buy it. (laughs) At any rate, uh, whoever out there is writing the latest chapter for the unwritten rule book, get on it. It's time to start writing. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Doug, it's time to welcome in this week's special guest. Once again, my friend, we're in the presence of greatness because joining us is a man who always enlightens, who always entertains. It's Raul Abanez. Raul, Doug and I appreciate you joining us here in Starkville. Thank you. Th- thanks, Jason, for that intro. I thought you were talking about Doug when you said that. It'd probably be more appropriate, but thank you. <laughs> I- Hey, the intro of Doug takes way longer than that, okay? <laughs> uh, for those who have not kept track, over the last decade, Raul Abanez has been Mr. October. Uh, he's been a broadcasting teammate of ours at ESPN. Uh, he now works as a senior vice president of on-field operations for Major League Baseball. And like pretty much every guest who appears here, he seems to have a connection with Doug Glanville. You might not know about. So <laughs> we have a lot to get to. Roll, you ready for us? I'm ready for you guys. Thank you. I'm, it's, I'm so happy to be here. Always great to see you guys. Yeah, likewise. Um, okay, so the week before this season began, we had Theo Epstein on with us. 
uh, to describe some of the, uh, the hopefully subtle changes that Major League Baseball was exploring to try to create more action, crisper pace, and as entertaining a product as possible. Uh, here we are now toward the end of that season. You've been working with Theo, with Mike Hill, with uh, other ex-players like Gregor Blanco and Nick Hunley on all of this stuff. So why don't we start there? How would you describe the main focus of your job over this last year? Well, um, yeah, so I've been I've been really fortunate, uh, Jason, to be around all the guys that you just mentioned. Additionally, Rajay Davis is there. Joe Martinez uh, is there, and he works very closely on the um, with the rules of the game and the rule changes. And so uh, it's been a collaborative effort where everyone gets together. There's a lot of feedback uh, thrown around. There's a a lot of really bright people behind the scenes. You know, Morgan Sword. Reed McPhail and and many others that, that are involved. And so, um, you know, we collaborate and we work together on a lot of these initiatives and, and it's all designed, everything's designed towards getting baseball to its best, the best version of, of baseball and whatever that version can be. And so we're all working towards the same goal. You know, Raul, I'm really glad that you're involved in this because you've seen the games from so many different vantage points. Uh, hey, you, you were a bench player, then you were a regular player, then you were a star, an all-star. You were a leader. You've been a broadcaster. Uh, you worked in the Dodgers front office. I think it's also fair to say you've always been a fan. So let me ask you a question that people are always asking me. Uh, anytime I write about this stuff, talk about this stuff, there's this blowback from a certain portion of baseball fans who are asking, why does everybody feel like they need to fix baseball? It's not broken. So as someone who has seen baseball from all those angles, how would you respond to that question? I totally agree that that baseball is not broken. Uh, and I think that we all are baseball fans, right? Um, Doug, Jason, myself, I sit there and I could watch 90 innings in a row of baseball. And so I don't think it's a matter of the game's broken, but, but to say that we can't get it to its best version or we can't make it better uh, would probably be irresponsible on, on all of our parts. So uh, we're all working towards the same objective. We all are, are working towards improving and getting the game to its best version. And we're doing it collectively and thoughtfully. Uh, so I would agree with that. The game is not broken. It's the greatest game in the world. We have the best athletes in the world playing it today. In today's world, these guys are more athletic. They're faster, stronger, uh, throw harder, better stuff. So um, I, I agree. This is the greatest game in the world. Uh, at the same time, you know, let's let's try to get it to the best version that it can be. You, you know, I think we've made this point every time we've talked about this uh, with anybody is the other the other sports change rules all the time. They experiment with rules yeah. all the time. And if they don't, then if they don't work, they try something else. And I never, ever hear people say. That's not the same brand of basketball that Bob Cousy played, so I'm never watching another <laughs> basketball game. Or that, that's not the same game that Red Grange used to play, so I'm never watching another football game. Why in baseball do we have people who are so uh, are so unwilling to even consider change? That's a great question, and um, I don't know that I have the answer to it, but I will tell you this from a player perspective, and I'd love to hear Doug's thoughts as well. Anytime there was a rule tweak, you know, our immediate reaction was always like, why are, why are we doing this? Why can't we, why can't we run over catchers anymore? And a few years later, you're like, 
you know, that was probably the right decision. That was a right call. <laughs> and, but I think immediately we all have the knee-jerk emotional reaction because we love this game so much, and that goes for our fan base as well. Yeah, Raul, I mean, one thing I think about with respect to that is I think it was 2000, maybe Sandy Alderson was trying to raise the strike zone. And this is before we talk about like you know, robot umps and things. So they were talking about elevating the strike zone and trying to call the call at the letters. They try to go back to this original form of the strike zone. Now, of course, every umpire is sort of like a player. They have their own zones. And, and I remember the passion in spring training. They were pitching to us as players, right? Okay, we're going to do this. This is going to happen. They're going to call it. And we were always first skeptical because are these umpires going to be able to keep what is their their strike zone and all of a sudden bend it after thir- your Bruce Fremming, right, 30 years later? Uh, that's one. And the other is like, you know, what are we trying to fix here? Like, is there something wrong? Now, I was a highball hitter, so I I was celebrating in the streets on this. <laughs> but <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, within that, you've seen that real organic change on the field level. And I'm curious when you talk about best version of it, how has that evolved for you from all those points of view? Because I know as a player, I saw the best version very differently than I saw it later as I was covering the game. So I'm curious how, how it sort of changed for you. Yeah, I think over time. So when I got to the office, um, Doug, when I got to the office, a lot of these initiatives were already you know, in place and, and the, we were already moving. There's a lot of really bright people in the office working towards these um, initiatives and getting the game to its best version. For me personally, I love, and I know we're probably going to get into this, but I love action. Um, I love I love to see guys like you steal bases. I couldn't steal bases, but I always love playing with guys that could steal bases because they could impact the game on so many levels. And I think displaying athleticism is probably the best version of baseball. And I also think the pace of play can be, you know, eliminating dead time is probably a good thing. We're not talking about messing with integrity of the game. We're not talking messing with the process of the outcome of the game. We're really talking about eliminating some of the dead time um, and, and creating a faster paced game, more action, more balls in play, uh, more frequent, you know, more frequent pitches, pitches being more frequently thrown. Um, I know we're probably going to get into this, but I'm going to jump the gun and talk about the enthusiasm <laughs> that I have for the pitch timer. Uh, when you well, hold on a second, let's just make sure people n- know what this is. I, you, okay. you know, you and I had a conversation uh, like a week or so ago about the 15 second pitch clock that was used in the league that used to be called the California League. And you said to me when we talked that that clock was the most exciting development that you'd seen of all the different rules baseball is experimenting with. So. I would just start there. What excites you about that 15-second clock and the impact it could make? The action. The pace of the game is phenomenal. Uh, The crispness of the defense. The guy's getting ready defensively. Uh, The pitcher gets the ball back. He gets back on the mound, looks in for the sign, comes set. And he could still play with the tempo of the base runners, and he could still play with the tempo and the the timing of the hitter by hanging onto the ball a little bit longer but he has to deliver the baseball uh, again within 15 seconds um, with nobody on base. And when there's people, on, when the guys are on base, it's 17 seconds, but the action and the pace of play uh, was really encouraging. And um, quite frankly, it's, it's one of the more enjoyable experiences of, of watching a baseball game uh, that I've had in a long time. That being said, as a spectator and a person who loves the game and is looking at intricate details 
and nuanced details the way that we all do. And, and you know, all of us on this call, we're, we're in love with this game. Um, again, I don't mind t- watching 12 hours of baseball. It doesn't bother me. That being said, watching this game and the quality of play in this game is one of the more encouraging things I've seen um, in the last you know decade. All right, let's bring Doug in on this one. Doug, 15 seconds between pitches. Um, do you think you would feel rushed if you had to get ready to hit 15 seconds? That's all you had? Well, you know, there is there is a generational component here that I recognize. And, and one of is, you know, the, the we talked about this on, on the last time, Jay, the, the synthesizing of data that goes into things that are happening in between pitches, right? I mean, they're shifting. There's communication. There's like people looking at cards. There's all kinds of stuff that's happening that was not happening when I was playing even. And so, you know, there needs to be some marriage, I suppose, between – uh, you know, sort of the major league level, all this information that you're trying to sift through and then try to be ready. You know, I, I always give the example of break, facing Greg Maddox. And, and at one point, he did so much scouting on you. When you stepped in the box, you knew he had all kinds of stuff. He knew your, your, who your future kids would be. I mean, he knew all this <laughs> stuff, right? So, so at one point, I used to get in the batter's box with both feet before the game, do my stretching and all that. It was just a ritual. And I looked down and, and then I'd look up. And I faced him a number of times. And this particular day, I looked up and the ball was halfway home. I mean, I was Maddox like, he's already on the mound. He's like, let's go. I know what you're going to do. So so you've seen it in the realm of possibility that preparation maybe could take, if you're preparing for a hitter, you might be prepared multiple pitches ahead. But the idea is like every pitch has so much weight on it. And, and I think for, for me, I, I recognize there is a generational shift to that. So, so part of the clock probably has to consider how we can distill this data. And maybe that's a good thing for baseball. Let's get this data moving. You know, it's like a two minute offense. Okay. We're in the red zone. Let's go. Let's go. And, and I think that creates more action and more pace for the game. Well, what do you think? Um, it, it, Doug makes such a great point. Life in the California league or the low A West league is just different. It's inherently different. Uh, you don't have the same amount of information to process between pitches. Uh, you don't have the same weight attached to every pitch. How could you possibly expect to take a rule from that league and translate it to the big leagues? I think that's one of the really big questions here. I think that's a fair point that Doug brings up is, you know, the synthesizing of data at the major league level. Uh, you know, pitchers have more weapons and there is uh, a lot of information to sift through uh, in between pitches. And it doesn't mean that 15 seconds and 17 seconds is the time. That was the time that was being used in the California League. So um, I, I think, it, you know, it's really important that we continue to be thoughtful and strategic of how we do this. And, and of course, you're going to break feedback from, uh, you know, from players and, and from all levels, coaches, managers. But what I can tell you is overall, the overwhelming majority, um, if not every player, coach, manager, even the Rovers, you know, former big leaguers that we talked to, are really enjoying uh, the game and the quality of play in the low A uh, West, West League with the pitch timer. I, yeah, I mean, I found the same thing when I was writing the, uh, my story about this in The Athletic a week or so ago. And um, it's funny, you and I had a laugh. I said, it, it doesn't seem like there's enough time to adjust both batting gloves and, and you made the point to me, you used to do that. 
right? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I think I think the players there have gotten accustomed to it, though. I mean, players are adaptable. They they learn quickly, and um, you know they they did. But you're right. I used to rip off too bad both. <laughs> Velcro on both batting gloves to get back in. And for me, it was signifying like the last pitch is gone and now the new pitch is coming. Like could you ritual. do that in 15 seconds? Um, pr- probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I guess you'd have to, but probably. Yeah, I, I, enc- I encourage you guys. I know that you've seen this, uh, Jason, and I don't know if Doug's been able to see it, but when you actually get to sit there and watch the game, I mean, I watch a lot of baseball games sitting in the stands and, and you know, on television. And if I looked down at my phone, there was a couple of times I was sitting there with Mike, <laughs> my, with Michael Hill in the stands and looked down at my phone and looked up and I said, what happened? The ball was in the outfield. <laughs> it's happening fast. <laughs> right. So is that what we want? I, you know, it's, it's just such an interesting question. Um, is that the pace we want? I, watching that game, uh, I thought the word that kept coming to mind for me was rhythm. Those games have such rhythm when there's pitch Throw it back, another pitch. But I I did hear from people, and I've heard this before when I've written about this or talked about this, from fans who said, I'm not in a hurry. When I go to a game, uh, I'm not in a rush to leave. I like the fact that I can talk to the people with me. You know, I like the fact that there's some time that hangs over that big at bat. And I get that. It is part of baseball. Um, How does the pitch clock balance with that part yeah and quite frankly i agree with that too i think our fans are not necessarily in a hurry but i would say that we would be hard pressed to find people that wouldn't want to see um the game that they love happening more frequently during that allotted time right um i can tell you from a player perspective and i think doug would agree with this if you can play a two hour and 35 minute game that's great. Nobody wants to play what can be played in 245 or 250 in three hours and 30 minutes. Uh, I think over time it, it does take a toll and everybody loves the guy defensively. You are ready when this guy, when I play behind Cliff Lee or you play against Mark Burley and, or, you know, Jared Washburn. Uh, who, and I think I said this to you the other day, they keep coming to mind for some reason. They're all left-handed pitchers. I, I think that's <laughs> accidental on my part, but uh, they worked so quick. And the pace of play was so frequent. You had to be on your toes. And defensively, uh, the team tended to play better, a better brand of baseball behind them. Yeah, Rico Bronia is managing in that league. And he brought up to me playing behind Greg Maddox in Atlanta and said, you'd have these night games where the game would be over and it wasn't even dark yet. That literally <laughs> happened in the game I watched. Right? So it is possible. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, Nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info/theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, 
and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Let's bring in the other element that is so fascinating, which is it. This wasn't just about time or pace. the The fact that since that league went to the clock, there was more offense. There were more homers. There were fewer strikeouts. There were fewer walks. There were fewer hit batters. We're talking about more action in the game, more offense in the game, and yet the game still took 21 minutes shorter than they used to. I'd like to hear both you guys, your theories on this. Um, how is this possible? Why did this happen? Doug, you want to take yeah, that one? No, let me lead with you, Raul. I'll hear, hear your insights on like what, what you've been seeing or data-wise too. I'm sure you have a lot of, a lot of info on that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, all of that data that, Jason, Jason, you did your homework, that's all accurate. Um, I thought that we would see, you know, better defensive play. I thought that it would actually be, you know, benefit uh, the pitching of the defense, uh, which I think it did as well. But at the same time, runs, they scored a lot more runs there. I think it was up to like 5.9 runs per game or something like that. It was the highest yeah. scoring. Now, now, in part, part of that too is, the low A West old California league, it is an offensive league, but uh, the, the runs run environment did increase um, it was half a run per game per team, half a, half a run per game per team. Yeah. And it was, yeah. it was happening fast. And so um, I, I think that there's something to, uh, you know, guys getting in the batter's box and being ready to hit right out of the, right out of the gate. Uh, you know, that the pitcher's on the mound, he's coming at you. Um I used to always joke when you play behind Cliff Lee, whatever happens, whether it's good or bad, it's going to happen fast. So, <laughs> so, so I think that there's an element of that where the, the crispness of the, of the game and the frequency of, of you know, a pitch being delivered uh, adds to the intensity and the focus of, of the guys in the batter's box and on the base paths. Yeah, and I always think about Crash Davis from Bull Durham. You know, he said, "Don't think it hurts the ball club." You know, uh, I, you know the overthinking part. Although we attribute baseball to be this sort of thinking man's game, you don't want to overthink it. 
And, and with all that information, it's, it's challenging because you're trying to get the perfect environment and, and recovery is so big, right? For pitchers, you know, taking that time because they're max effort right now. And they know there's someone in the bullpen that's about to throw a hundred also. So they're, they're, they're airing it out and they want to have as much behind it, as much recovery in between pitches as possible. And, and I think when you kind of strip away a lot of the extra, you get to more of the instincts of the game, which is what you kind of celebrate, right? The idea that, or I'm just reacting, uh, you know, getting in the batter's box. I mean, you know, Raul, like you get in the batter's box and you're thinking about 300 things, the popcorn guys yelling at you, you hear the, you know, third base coach or you, every sign sounds like he's banging on a drum. You're in trouble when you're kind of have that much going through your mind. You know, the, the best times when you're locked in, you're, you know, as Tony Gwynn so said so beautifully, concentration is the ability to be blank. And I thought that was like so perfect about like when you're just sort of in that, but when you have a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of distractions, it's, it's tougher. So I think it's getting to some organic side of the game that lets these players not only show their athleticism, just show their instincts and, and responding. And you don't lose anything. You know, it's like driving when you're driving and there's that moment you realize like, Oh, I didn't really n- realize I made those turns and, but I, but you were still in command. You were just on a different plane. I, I, I love the game at its best when it, when it kind of finds those spaces. It's really beautifully said, Doug. Thank, thanks for sharing that. It's beautifully said. I, I mean, don't you, don't both you guys notice this? All the, all the pitches right down the middle that hitters take now. And I, when I see that, I, I'm always thinking, they're th- expecting something else. They're trying to process all this information that they were given, and they just overthought it and took a strike to, uh, took a took a fastball right down the middle. And m- maybe the game, as Doug was just suggesting, would be better off if guys prepared beforehand and then just played. Is is that what we're what we could be looking for, striving for? If there's a clock. I think it, it gets us closer to that, um, you know, where it's about athleticism and instincts and, and preparation. Um, and, and like Doug said, and Yogi Berra, I think was the one who said it full heads and empty bat. Um, and so I, <laughs> we've all been in the batter's box. When you mentioned the popcorn vendor, I, I knew I was in trouble in the batter's box when I could hear him say popcorn peanuts, especially in spring training. I could hear him. And, and so, yeah, I think it, you know, we have, once again, I, I can't say this enough, and I, I'm sure you guys see this. You're watching the same game I do. We have the most athletic players right now, the biggest, strongest, fastest. Everybody's throwing 100 miles per hour out of the bullpen, it seems like. Um, you know, there's it's not uncommon during any game, any given game. Guys are throwing 90-plus mile-per-hour sliders. The stuff is incredible. The power is tremendous. And guys are really athletic. They know how to play this game. And I think anything that gets us back to the point where they're just displaying their skills on the field and their athleticism and their instincts uh, becomes a very a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, much like the way that I look at it is like listening to, you know, studio musicians versus, uh, you know, listening to Jimi Hendrix play the guitar. Right. Or, or Jimmy Page, who are, you know, those guys are virtuosos, too, but you can feel their music. You could feel what they're doing. And, and I, I just love watching the game when, you know, it's one-on-one. It's, it's, it's nine-on-one, really, but it's a one-on-one match at that point. And, you know, guy steps out of the box for a second, and he's kind of gathering his thoughts, making an adjustment on the pitch before. The pitcher's doing the same thing. 
he threw two pitches, you know, he threw this pitch because two pitches later, he wanted to get to this other pitch over here. And I think that's the beauty of the game and anything that we could do uh, to get us back there is I think going to be in the best interest of baseball. Okay. Why don't we talk about some of these other things that maybe we could do uh, some of these other experiments that baseball's trying. Now I, I also went to the Atlantic league uh, to watch a game pitch from 61 feet, six inches instead of 60 feet, six inches. And I know that league is still going. Their season isn't over yet. Um, but what have we learned from that so far? Um, I know there are big offensive numbers in that league, but do we have a feel for whether moving the pitcher back a foot is worth everything that goes with it? I think that that one, they're still collecting data on that and, and looking and sifting through that carefully and thoughtfully. Uh, I think on the, on the surface, it, it hasn't been, um, you know, a very significant change in anything to be honest. And, but, uh, but, you know, before I say that with certainty, I, I think it's important to really look, look at the data and, and, you know, carefully look at the data and make sure that what we're seeing is accurate. But as of right now, it hasn't been any significant change either way. Yeah. I mean, that's what we, that's what we'd seen when I went there too. I mean, it's, it's about a little over a month and a half, I guess, of, of doing this. So I'm guessing this is something that needs to be studied further. (laughs) If you can find pitchers that want to pitch from 61 feet, six inches. Um, Let me ask you about double A. They've been limiting shifts all season in all the double A leagues. First half, the limitation was just no infielders in the outfield. Second half, it was two infielders on either side of second base. Couldn't have three on one side. So I looked at this too, and it seems like offense, especially batting average, was up in those leagues too this year. But you've studied this more closely than I have. What do you think has been the impact of limiting the shift? Well, there's going to be a difference, right? And again, that's one of those things where we're going to look at, uh, you know, carefully, thoughtfully, really look through it. Um, but it's there's probably going to be a more significant um, impact at the major league level with shift limitations because sure. they shift more often and there's a lot more data. Uh, and you have, you know, seven years of data on on a player instead of, you know, seven weeks uh, or right or, or or a full year from the year before, and, and guys are changing and adapting a lot sooner at that level than at the major league level. So I think it's going to be interesting to to once that all of that data is in, and you compare it to what uh, you think will happen at the major league level. Uh, but as of right now, you're right; it hasn't been a, a very significant change at all. Uh, but with that said, they shift a lot less in Double A than they do at the major league level. Yeah, you know, I think maybe the uh, like the raw data doesn't tell us enough in in this situation. What I'd be more interested in is um, our ground balls up the middle hits again. Our ground balls through the right side hits again. That that rope over the second baseman that's now caught by the third baseman standing out in short right field. Um, what's been the impact of? not being able to do that on defenses. Is it too soon to even know that? It's too, it's really too soon to know that, um, you know, again, it's, it's really about studying the data and, and, you know, these are, these are real changes that are being, you're looking towards implementing in the game at the highest level at some point. Uh, so it's, it's very important. I can tell you though, that from a player perspective, 
um, you don't love the shift because ground balls up the middle. You're if, since you're a little kid, they're like hit it right back up the middle, and now there's a guy standing back there. <laughs> or, or I couldn't, I couldn't run like Doug. So a one hopper, two hundred and twenty feet away from me was an out. Uh, but then at the same time, I can also tell you that you know, as a member of the Dodgers front office, I love the shift because we were very good at it, <laughs> really good at it, and you get a lot of outs that way. Uh, so I think it's going to be important to um, really carefully look at these at these. Uh, in in depth, really look carefully and take an in depth look at, at all the data once the season's over. Yeah, well, is I mean, isn't that the uh, the crux of this? Is front offices love the shift, left handed hitters hate this shift. <laughs> Pitchers <laughs> depends on what happened the last pitch they threw, right? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, how, there's so many different interests in what people would like to see happen with the shift. How are you going to navigate that, man? Yeah, I think the goal is is part, you know, the offensive impact of the shift. And the other part is getting, you know, the the field to look uh, more of what a traditional baseball field used to look like for the game that we all grew up knowing and loving and watching and and letting guys display their athleticism as well. So that was part of the intent, too, is it was really great. You know, it, what if we were shifting back when Ozzie Smith was playing, would we have been robbed of these incredible plays that, uh, you know, that Ozzy Smith was doing regularly. Um, so I, I, that was the intent behind, you know, the, the experiment and the rule change. Yeah. I mean, Raul, at, at one point, Raul, I had a chance to talk to Barry Bonds in San Francisco when I was doing a, a Cubs Giants game. And, you know, we were, you know, it was very fascinating him opening up about just all the new things that were starting to happen, especially with shifting. Because of and, him. <laughs> well, because of him, right, and the people mover that they should have installed from from the home to first. So, um, but he said at one point he said the shift may you know he, he, players will ask him about like okay the shift is really driving me bananas, he, and he said the shift will keep me from hitting four hundred, but it won't stop me from hitting three hundred. And I thought it was interesting, you know. Now Bonds can say that, so it made me think of this quote, and I'm going to read this to you. It's a uh, there's a great book called Cutting for Stone. Uh, it was a it's a not a novel fiction story, but it's great. Here's the quote: A rich man's faults are covered with money, but a surgeon's faults are covered with earth. Right. So, and you know, talking about the medical profession. So, I would add something Bonds also said, and that is a pitcher's fault and mistakes are covered by the shift, and because he believes that you know this sense of execution. Right, you can kind of be like, well, I'm just going to throw it here. I don't have to make certain pitches because they're already there, and and so I wonder, you know, just sort of referencing bonds in this, just your thoughts about the shift as a mechanism to sort of be able to get away with things from the pitching side, and if that's something that is is sort of discussed or considered. Yeah, so that's a that's a lot uh, right there, Doug. I appreciate that. I appreciate your insight on that. And, and Barry's, of course. And um, I, I'm guessing the game was a little easier for Barry than it was for either of us. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, for sure. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's probably some truth to that. At the same time, at the end of the day, at the major league level, as we all know, it's about winning baseball games. And you know, a shift shifting, let's say in the infield doesn't necessarily mean that guys are pull hitters. It, it just means that guys become pull hitters when they hit the ball on the ground. 
Uh, and so, you know, the guys with power wind up becoming pull hitters because, you know, it's, um, I, I would wonder how many hits, you know, the great Barry Bonds had between third and short, you know, in the, in the five, six hole, although Tony Gwynn probably had a lot of those. And so, um, I think, uh, I think it's really, I think there's some, there's some truth to that. At the same time, I, I do believe that teams are just doing their best to, to win baseball games and, and they're going to go where the data goes and, you know, wherever the data points them, that's where they're going to get the outs, but it does put you at a, a, a strategic disadvantage as a hitter. You know, again, this is me, the player talking because I, I played with Albert Pujols for a half season and I, I probably watched them line out right to there was a, a person, a human being standing behind the second base bag. I watched them line out and ground out in a half season. I'll bet it was a dozen times in a half season. And so, I mean, you're talking 24 hits in a year. That That's a lot of base hits and a lot of production. Uh, so, you know, I, I, you, teams are going to do what they have to do to get out, of course. And um, But I think there is some truth to that, right, where it, it almost becomes – an unfair advantage for the hitter. If you have four guys stacked up, three guys stacked up on one side of the field, uh, I think there is an unfair advantage there. Um, and, you know, the only way to to mitigate that would be through rule changes. Well, and Raul, I mean, just, yeah, just a quick follow-up on that. It's like you mentioned Ozzy Smith earlier and, you know, being in position and how he just had a certain necessity to be able to know where to go, right? And if you could put Ozzy Smith right where the ball is going to be hit, there's Ozzy Smith isn't Ozzy Smith. And and so you know, sometimes the concern is are we are we ch- sometimes chasing the lowest common denominator, right? Like the like if I'm playing basketball and everybody's hitting threes and we just give up on the post game, you might instead of saying, "Well, let me address the threes, let me just add a four-pointer," right? You could easily go that way. So do you, do you feel like, is there any, um, you know, I guess sort of fail safe or how do you actually test that to sort of decide, okay, are we, are we caving into the fact that, okay, everybody's a reliever now, so we're just going to end extra innings or are we actually trying to push it in another direction and how do you protect against that? It's a really good question. And, and again, these are things that we talk about internally quite a bit and, and thinking about, uh, doing these things, um, you know, being very thoughtful in, in how we do this and how we uh, implement these rule changes and, and test them. And uh, and so these are really good questions and questions that we kick around quite a bit uh, internally. Uh, you know, once again, teams are going to do what they have to do to win baseball games. Uh, players are going to do what they have to do to win baseball games. And, 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 uh, and so the only way to mitigate some of these things would be implementing thoughtful rule changes. And that's kind of where we are internally at the office. Theo's been huge. Uh, he's been in- incredibly helpful and, and uh, spearheading a lot of this stuff. And and so as a group, you know, we constantly are talking and, and thinking through these things. And there's a lot of really, really bright people. I can tell you that internally, really bright people that love this game and that want to see the best version of the game on the field. You know, I think this goes back to something that that you've touched on a couple of times that Theo talked about a lot. Aren't you, you're looking at the sport of baseball in a way and imagining it's a, a blank slab of clay and you're trying to sculpt the most beautiful version of baseball that you can sculpt. I know Theo talked about this a lot. If, if we were starting now 
what kind of baseball would we have? What kind of sport would we design? What would, what would our sculpture look like? And is it is it possible to think that way? I, I've, I've thought about this a lot since he was on. Um, is is it possible, given the history of the game, uh, all the things that provoke all these different emotions in fans and players and everybody's part of the game? Can I mean? Can I know I'm like I'm not saying this very well, but can we create a version of baseball that's almost as if it didn't exist in the past, given all of that? That's a great question. I- I think you, you, you're talking about sculpting, and uh, it made me think about, uh, I think it was Michelangelo, who they were talking about his masterpiece, and he said it was always there. He just had to chip away the stone. And that's kind of how I feel about the game of baseball. It is a masterpiece. It still is a masterpiece. And now we're just chipping away off of the edges uh, things that maybe we're bringing out the beauty in the game again. It's already been a beautiful game. It already is a beautiful game, and it's been a beautiful game. And I think just restoring it, getting it back to where uh, some of these things were in the past, uh, when we talk about pace of play and action and balls in play and athleticism and stolen bases and doubles and triples, and really giving the fans what they love. Uh, again, we have the – you think about the players today. I mean, we have Shohei Otani, right? Yeah. Think about that, guys. We're, we're watching Shohei Otani. It's almost like – we're, I'm, I've been watching him, you know, all year do this, and I'm mystified every time he does it. It's incredible that he can keep doing it. I'm, he goes out, he throws 98 miles per hour, gets people out, and then hits homers. Uh, it, it's just, it's remarkable. It's Superman, and I mean, and then, and then speaking of Superman, he plays alongside Mike Trout, right? Who's hasn't been healthy this year, but so, you know, once in a generation type player, Tatis, uh, Vlad Jr. I mean, Max Scherzer, the season that he's having, and and just there's so many uh, incredible players and so so much action and so much uh, beauty in the game already that I think it's just a matter of chipping away the edges and and bringing that beauty out. All right. Well, let's ask you about just a couple other changes, and then we'll we'll, we'll move on. But uh, in the A ball leagues, high A and low A, uh, besides the pitch clock, there are limits on pickoffs. Uh, okay. If I remember this right, high A, the pitcher has to step off before he makes a pickoff throw to any base, correct? And in low A, there's a limit of two moves to first base or any base. After that, it's a balk. And uh, it's amazing to look at this. The rate of base stealing in those leagues was incredible this year. We haven't seen that level of base stealing attempted in the major leagues in like a hundred years. And so let me ask you a question that we, uh, we asked Theo, how much base stealing do you think we really want to see in the big leagues? That's a great question. I would say a lot more than we have now, <laughs> if, I could, <laughs> if I could answer it <laughs> simply. Um, I think the cat and mouse, I mean, we're, you know, we've got a gentleman on the on this call right now who stole a lot of bases at the major league level and was a threat. I think the psychology of what the base stealer does to a pitcher, I've talked to, you know, elite pitchers in the game, teammates that just completely freak out when there's somebody on base that could swipe second and third from them, even though they know they could punch out the next two guys. It just totally changes the dynamic of the game and how they go about pitching. So 
I think base stealing has always been a, a beautiful part of the game of baseball. And I got to play with, you know, Ricky Henderson at the end of his career when he was, I think he was 42, but he could still like pinch run and steal a bag. <laughs> uh, and, and there's the, the artistry uh, in that, in that skill is such a beautiful thing to watch and, and something that I'd like to see more in the game. And I think our fans have been very clear that, that they also love to watch stolen bases. Yeah. Nobody wants to see less base stealing. <laughs> uh, let, let me ask you about one more thing. Um, I, I know you've been working on the electronic strike zone, refining a little bit in the Atlantic league and uh, the league that used to be the Florida state league. The players that I talked to in the Atlantic League seemed disappointed in this and frustrated with it. Uh, where would you say that the electronic strike zone stands right now? I would say that the technology is there. It's incredibly, and, and, you know, it's impressive technology, but that's another one of those uh, things where there's going to be more testing. Uh, there's a lot more to look into than, you know, that you're talking about making a, a pretty significant change to the game and how balls and strikes are called. So, there's a lot. I'd say that we're still in the data collecting stages and and really sifting through it carefully. Uh, so I know there's uh, all right. There's one more thing that's to come, and that is experimenting with tackier baseballs in AAA. Uh, what will the surface of those baseballs be like, and what could it mean? Um, so we we've experimenting. It's been very encouraging. Uh, the results of, of some, but again, that's, there's more testing involved. You have to go lab testing in game testing, but we've been gathering feedback from, from players, from pitchers and, and taking them around as a group. Um, and it's been very, very encouraging, uh, what, what pitchers and, and players think about these baseballs. Could help you get rid of sticky stuff, uh, theoretically, right? That that's that's the goal is just a level playing field. And the players will tell you they just, they want a level playing field as well. And, and uh, you know, it's about it's about getting grip on the baseball. And uh, and and so it's been very, very encouraging. I can tell you that. So, Raul, it, with respect to all these changes, is there a timetable or something that's sort of sooner on the horizon that you're really trying to get? across sooner uh, or quicker i know obviously player you know collective bargaining all these things around the corner that that make it challenging but do you have any kind of milestones or goals in terms of the timetables yeah we're trying to implement you know of course doing the right thing first and foremost for the game of baseball and and trying to implement uh these these rule changes or whether it's you know a grippier or, or a you know better version of not just the game of baseball but actual the actual baseball uh, I would say that, you know, that once we thoughtfully test these things out and once they've been, you know, planned appropriately and, and the consensus has been gathered, then that's when they'll happen. I wouldn't say that, you know, we're not going to hastily make decisions. You got to do what's right for the game of baseball, you know, first and foremost. Uh, but with that said, you know, if, if things work out very well and, and everyone's in agreement, then then you, you'll see those things, those rules, those ideas um, implemented first and, and and right away, as soon as they can be. If everyone's in agreement, that's all. Huh? <laughs> that shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> we, we agree on pretty much everything. These days. <laughs> uh, let, let me ask you about some other stuff. Um, you know, we're only a few days away from another postseason. You had some magical postseason moments. 
Is there one that you remember that stands above the rest? I, I mean, thank you for that. For the first, the first thing is once you get to the postseason and you get to experience it that first time, um, it becomes a, uh, it, it's, it's addictive. The, the, the feeling is addicting, right? So, um, uh, just the first time you get into the postseason, the feeling of your heart racing and catching a routine fly ball or somebody makes a routine play and everyone in the dugout is like on the top step cheering just for a routine play. Uh, I think that's the first thing that jumps out to mind. And I'm getting goosebumps right now. Um, and and then, you know, I was fortunate, so fortunate to be a part of that Yankee team in 2012. Uh, and, you know, those moments were obviously moments, of, you know, I'll never forget. I grew up as a kid, a Reggie Jackson fan watching, you know, Thurman Munson and Greg Nettles and, you know, Bucky Dent hit his home run. I remember coming home from school early and he was in the shadows and Bucky Dent hit the home run. So, uh, you know, getting an opportunity to do that was, it was pretty special. Yeah. Those incredible late inning long balls. You ever have flashbacks to those swings uh, out of the blue, you're brushing your teeth, you're pumping (laughs) gas and something just brings it back to life. (laughs) You know, whatever it does come back to life, you think I'd be interested to hear what Doug thinks. You look back on it and you're like, oh, wow, I actually that actually did happen. I was a part of that. (laughs) Right. Because you grow up with this childhood dream and then you get you're at the major league level. And every day you're just trying to master your craft and get better and help your team win however you can. Then all of a sudden it's gone and you retire. And a few years go by and you're like, I don't remember. Did I really even play? Right. <laughs> so when it ever comes up, you're like, gosh, that did happen. So that, that's kind of how I feel about it. It's almost like it was a dream. Well, yeah. I mean, I see Shohei Otani and I think, how was I ever in the big leagues? Like, seriously, this is this guy's like on another planet. Um, so, but yeah, I just, um, thank goodness for video. I can go back and say, yeah, I did. I was there. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. It, it, it's time for the Doug Glanville connection portion of our show. Uh, let's go back to uh, the, the offseason of 2014. Joe Madden leaves the Rays for the Cubs. The Rays put together a great list of outside-the-box candidates to mm. replace Joe Madden. Two names on that list, Doug Glanville and Raul Abanez. Have you guys ever talked about what might have been. <laughs> I don't know if we have. Did, did we talk in that in that off season or something? Uh, I think we might have gotten untouched. But um, yeah, that was crazy. I mean, I in fact, I was so blindsided by getting invited, and I certainly I wasn't even looking that I didn't call the Rays back for three days. They called me, and I was like, oh, they must be some want some analytics job, whatever. I, I was like, there's no way. And when I finally talked to him, I still didn't even believe them. It's like, we're looking to see if you fill this vacancy. I was like, are you talking about like the front office? It's like, no, Joe Madden, what are you talking I had no idea. So I had to run around and scramble. I called Tom Gamboa, love Tom. And I started like building answers. I, Mark Simon was my researcher. And I built I built a whole team, a bench team, bench coach, a whole. So uh, I had no idea what I was doing, but uh, I, I enjoyed the process. I was so shocked that none of the questions were really about X's and O's. They were a lot about managing people, personnel, relationships with the front office, uh, the scenarios. It was it was pretty surprising. I was I had my data ready, but a lot of their questions were really about how you're going to get along with people. And, and rule, I, if I remember right, you decided in the end you 
you weren't interested in managing, so you never even interviewed. Is that right? No, I went through the process, uh, the first oh, did. part of the process, and then um, then after I hadn't even retired yet, and I sat down with my wife and my kids, and I was like, okay, you know, there's this opportunity. Went through the first interview, and you know, there may be another one coming up. Uh, are you guys ready to move to St. Pete? And <laughs> my my wife's like, uh, the kids have school. They're not going to be there till the summer. My oldest son is yelling, you have to do this. I've got my three younger daughters all crying saying, you promise you're going to retire. <laughs> and so, um, I, I reluctantly had to pull out, but what an honor and a privilege to be in the same breath as, as Doug Glanville and with, you know, Eric Neander and Matt Silverman and Haim Bloom and, you know, uh, just to be considered, uh, with, with, you know, by those guys was just such a huge honor, but ultimately my, my family won out. You know, I don't know whatever happened to that Kevin Cash guy that they hired instead of you. They have won a little bit <laughs> since That's that job search. Do you, do you ever think about, suppose it had been me? No, I, I personally don't think about that because I, <laughs> I, I watch the incredible work that Kevin Cash does and I'm like, you know what? They got the right man for the job. He's definitely the right guy for the job and the right organization. And, and I couldn't be happier for all of them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so true. Cash is great. And and the thing is, like, I always, the story I heard about as I was trying to get ready for the interview and talking to people was how Cleveland, the Indians, who he was working for at the time, trained him and actually put him through exercises to get him ready for his interview. I mean, they had so much respect for him. And I, I felt like I, you know, I was like, there's no way I'm competing with that. I mean, that was just, you know, that was really cool to hear. And uh, so it was fun. I, I learned a lot. You know, my wife, my, my sort of knowing that this wasn't going to happen, even if I got the job, my wife was like, this is an academic exercise, right? This is just an academic exercise. <laughs> so so I was like, yeah, it probably is, I guess, at this point. You know, we just had, uh, I had young kids and they're still pretty young. But um, yeah, that it was cool to be in the process. And, you know, to this day, Heimblum and in Boston and they're all, everybody from there is doing incredible work and are true pioneers in this game. So it's, it was great to be part of it. Well, you guys are doing incredible work too, especially in the last hour. (laughs) 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 All right, one more thing now, time for everybody's favorite game. Know your Raul Abanez trivia. (laughs) Raul, you're going to play this game. Here's your your question. All right, you once hit 156 home runs, for the Mariners, and 70 for the Phillies. Did you know only one other player has ever hit 30 or more for both the Mariners and the Phillies? And I'm going to be easy on you. We're going to do this multiple choice. So is the other guy, A, David Bell, B, Gene Segura, or C, Brad Miller? 30 homers for the Mariners and the Phillies. Wow. Let's right. see. What do you got there, Rule? Is it me? Well, you, um, yeah, this I'm is for you. No, I don't no, care no, what Glanville thinks. Okay. Okay. All right. You, so, all right, you, you, I'm guessing. you're way above 30 with each of those teams. No. One other player in history hit 30 career homers for both the Mariners and the Phillies. No, no. So I, choices just, I, are, I, I just meant, were you asking me? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. That's the same. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, you have to play the <laughs> Know You Were Rule Abanya's <laughs> trivia game. David Bell. That's your final answer. Final answer. And you're. 
absolutely <laughs> correct. And I'm sneaky because Brad Miller hit 29, 29 for the yeah. Mariners yeah. <laughs> and yeah. 32 for the Phillies. So you are correct. David Bell hit 47 for the Seattle Mariners. He hit 38 for the Phillies. And Raul, thanks for playing. You're the winner in the Know Your Raul Labanez mm-hmm. trivia game. Got to be a thrill. Thank you. Thank you for letting me win something. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. That's what we do here. Listen, man, it's a pleasure always to talk to you about baseball or pretty much anything else. Uh, thank you so much for visiting us here in Starkville. And please come back anytime you're in the neighborhood. Thank you, guys. Keep, keep up the great work. Love listening to you guys. Always great seeing you and talking to you. Thank you. Okay, here we go again, Doug. It's that time again. Time for listener trivia. Our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. And even though this is working out better for you than for us, we just keep on literally involving you by picking a trivia question from one of our lucky listeners and then inviting that lucky listener to join us on this podcast to stump us with your question. It's easy to do. We prove that every week. <laughs> we'll tell you how you can do it in just a few minutes. Um, hey, this week, Doug, we're going to do something we haven't done in a while. We're reaching into our email supply, and picking one of the questions that we got via email. You know, we've we've gone to the Twitter well a lot. That has not worked out too hot. So let's try something different this week. Uh and we'll welcome in Josh Garris, who emailed us a fun question the other day. Josh, thanks for joining us here in Starkville. Thanks for having me. How are you guys doing today? We are yeah, great. We're doing we great. Haven't, haven't flunked our trivia quiz yet. Yeah. <laughs> we're still optimistic right now, this moment. So far. Yeah. You know, one thing I like about these email questions, Josh, is that I know that our emailers actually listen to the show because that's the way you would get the email address. So Josh, I'm guessing you've heard me and Doug go up in flames uh, trying to answer many a trivia question before this, right? A few times, yeah. And you can admit it, you enjoy that, right? I enjoy the trivia, yes. Okay. And you thought to yourself, I can make them look like dopes too. Is that about how this went? Uh, more or less. Plus I was just found a fact and I was kind of interested in or found a question. Uh, I was kind of interested if I could uh, uh, figure it out. Well, I, I thought it was an excellent question. I actually lobbied for your question. So since I was in your corner, I'm expecting you to go easy on us. Is that okay? Uh, seems fair enough. <laughs> All, right. All right, Josh, it's that time. What is your Starkville trivia question? All right. So inspired by the fact that my beloved Phillies are uh, – sitting comfortably outside of a playoff position right now, even though Bryce, Wark, Will, uh, Bryce Harper and Zach Wheeler have a good chance at uh, winning MVP and Cy Young. Um, I was wondering if this has happened before, and it turns out it's happened one time before in the history of the sports. Um, two, uh, or MVP and Cy Young um, on the same team, and that team does not make the postseason. What is that team? Hmm. Okay, so this is the only team in history – with the MVP and the Cy Young, but no postseason baseball to show for it. Got it. Okay, we have a couple of clarifying questions. Mine is, uh, I'm assuming this does not include 1994 because that was a strike year. There was no postseason, so nobody played postseason baseball. That's correct. correct. Yeah, 1994 is not. Yeah. Okay, Doug? 
Yeah, and, and I just, you know, just thinking through the game theory here. So you could have a pitcher that was an MVP and a Cy Young. So are we do we need to make that distinction? It's two different people, or you're just you're not you, you, um, don't, have, you don't have to give. I'll us clarify that. for you that it is two different people. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Then the, the one last thing. Okay, this is not necessarily confined to division play. It can be any time. It can be any time. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we have a shot at this. Um, wrote down a bunch of guesses, Doug. Uh, my first thought was the Cubs in the late 80s. Uh, Andre Dawson and Greg Maddox won around the same time. But I, I think Maddox's Cy Young season with the Cubs came after the Dawson MVP season. Uh, I thought another possibility from back then was the the Orioles, and I believe it was 1980, the year Steve Stone won, and Eddie Murray, but I could be getting mixed up. It's possible Steve Stone won in 79. It's also possible that it was 80 and George Brett was the MVP. That year he almost hit 400. Oh, yeah. So I, I, that's a good, like it's a possibility, but I don't know. Um, so then I thought, wait, it must be more recent than that. The voters are less inclined now to give the MVP award to a player for a playoff team. So I was messing around with my head with how Felix Hernandez and Ichiro might have done that on the Mariners, but mm. there's no way they won the same year. Then I thought about Rick Porcello Whoa. and Mookie Betts with the mm. Red Sox a few years back, but I, I can't remember if that team made the playoffs or even mm. if they won in the same year. And then it hit me because, Josh, you said you were a Phillies fan, right? So I thought... I am a Phillies fan. All right. What about those late 1980s Phillies? Steve Bedrosian won the Cy Young. Mike Schmidt, it feels like, won the MVP the same year. I was watching Cam Bedrosian, Steve Bedrosian's son, pitch the other day, and that one hit me. But again, that's just a stab in the dark knowing you're a Phillies fan. <laughs> Doug, uh, what, what, what do you got? Save us here. Yeah, I I mean, I I like the the Bedrosian. I had the same thought. I just wasn't sure if the MVP, if it being Mike Schmidt, I couldn't tell how young, you know, Schmidt retired at 89, right? And and just, yeah. did he have like a great MVP year, like later, like 86? He seven. did. He definitely yeah. did. So that's that's what I six I think is yeah I can't remember when Bedrosian because eighty six I was the Mets and didn't they they had no Cy Young pitchers that year I try to think like I don't know (laughs) Dwight Gooden and so okay so that was one but I also went back in time and said okay what about like Ernie Banks right he was amazing and he had Fergie Jenkins yeah and they never made the playoffs we 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 know that right. So I kind of thought Banks, Jenkins, and it seemed like they had multiple chances to do it. Uh, and then I w- then I kind of draw blanks after. I thought about Carlton and, and Joe Torre. I wasn't sure they made the playoffs or did uh, – and Stanton and Fernandez, did they have great years at the same time? Stanton won the MVP, uh, didn't he, or no? Jose, yeah, Jose, Jose Fernandez, Fernandez did not win never the Cy Young ever, though. Okay. He had a good case one year, but – uh, I, you know what? I, I like the Ernie Banks Ferguson Jenkins guess. That seems to me to be a hell of a guess. Um, mm. and we've already clarified that it can be before division play. Um, was Fer- was Ferguson Jenkins with yep. the Cubs when Ernie Banks was winning his MVPs, which were 
50, late 50s. That's true. It might yeah. be timetable problem. Because he, because see, Hank, Hank Aaron also won two in a row, and Ernie Banks won two in a row. Um, or so Hank would have won probably 57, 58, which were World Series years for the Braves. So if Ernie Banks was winning in the f- before that 55 56 50s. that's before Ferguson Jenkins yeah I'm it might be sure. too early it might be but Banks so, might be it's a great guess we <laughs> I mean I, I think, Josh, this is what we do every week we, well, I, we we almost get there and then we talk ourselves out of whatever answer well right, so. I mean I've always shot myself in the foot by not going with the Phillies although I was a cub too and I I think it's like I I'd rather get it wrong by guessing <laughs> Bedrosian <laughs> than guessing banks and it be the Philly. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's, let's, let's do that since we both had that thought. Uh, Josh, is there any chance that the answer to this is Mike Schmidt and Steve Bedrosian with the Phillies? It is not. <laughs> Doug, we messed it up again. Oh, no. no I, I, can, right, I can live with that because I got I to gotta guess that one. Can you? All right. What? what? Josh, what's the actual answer? It's a 1962 Dodgers with Don Drysdale and Maury Wills. Wow. All right. Very good. I mean, you could. Maury Wills. You you could put an asterisk on this because it was (laughs) the year that the Dodgers and Giants wound up playing that extra three game playoff after game 162 but oh interesting but that was it was considered part of the regular season it's part yeah oh very very tricky the year wills played 165 games and that that's really good what a what a great what a great question but in other news doug we are so pathetic yeah i mean i that was that was tough the the 1962 but yeah i I like our (laughs) guesses though i think they were thought out and our yeah. banter was – we felt like we made progress. So, yeah. Yeah. See, this is this is what we now consider progress. We're, we're now 5-20 and 20 in trivia this season. 5-20. and 20. That is just horrible. Now, I do have some ideas about how we can address this without resorting to another one of Glanville's devious cheating schemes. Maybe we can talk about that next week after we know what our final humiliating record is for the season, yeah. uh, we, we, we do know that doing this legally is getting us nowhere. <laughs> <That's> good, exactly. <laughs> Whatever. If you listen regularly, you know, whether we get the question right, ha, huh, or wrong, we still bring in our mayor. And once again, this week, it's our acting mayor, Cameron Molina, to save the segment. Mayor Cam, it is time for you. To work your magic with a little classic play-by-play that revolves around this week's question. That's a lot of pressure to save the segment. I don't know if I'm able to do that after missing out <laughs> on that. It's never been done yet, but let's go with that. <laughs> but listen, Maury Wills had a fantastic 1962 season, obviously won the MVP, set the stolen base record. I have neither audio bites for those, but what I do have is something far better. A base hit from Wills. And the 1967 Major League Baseball All-Star versus Celebrities softball game. <laughs> oh, wow. Very well, you at 300 for the Pirates this year. We'll lead it off as he returns to Dodger Staney form in a Pittsburgh uniform. Wills loops one in the left field, and it drops in front of Peter Falk for a base hit. Come on, Peter. Get that ball away. <laughs> <I> slide. <laughs> 
which is happening. Oh, come on, make the play. Look at the scouting <laughs> was, report. Fox scouting Vince report. Scully going a celebrity softball game involving Peter Falk. What is happening? <laughs> That's the greatest. Has nothing to do with the question. But that is by far the greatest play-by-play ever played in this segment, Mr. Mayor. Excellent great work. work. Great yes. work. Uh, Josh, thank you for the excellent question. Also, thank you for listening. Thank you for emailing. Um, great having you. Thanks. Great being on. Thanks, Josh. Strange but true. It's time for possibly our favorite segment of this show. It's the strange but true highlight of the week. Uh, Doug, you know how much I love a good suspended game just because it turns reality upside down, right? So here we go. Hit another great one. Uh, this was last Friday night, the Padres and the Braves uh, in San Diego were finishing a suspended game that began in Atlanta on July 21st, but really had gotten rained out in Atlanta right before that. So I I don't know exactly what the heck this was, but <laughs> it produced the usual wacky time travel developments. I'll go through a few of my favorites. Uh, okay, so the, after they resumed the July 21st game in San Diego in September, uh, we had Adam Duval homering for the Braves, off Daniel Hudson uh, in a game that the record book will always say happened on July 21st, except for one thing. They also both played in a different game between the Marlins and Nationals on July 21st. So officially, our mixed-up record book is going to claim they both played in two different games for four different teams against each other on the same day, except no, they didn't. Okay, so that's one. Uh, another great thing is the Fernando Tatis portion of these festivities. He did something really special in part two of this game. Driven to deep center field. The ball going back and that ball is gone. Home run for Fernando. Padres take a 6-5 lead. Gets it off the closer for the Braves. This ball was laced off the bat of Fernando Tatis Jr. It was laced, all right. He hit it in Atlanta, and it landed in San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's go through this one, Doug. Uh, That that was Don Orsillo and Mark Grant describing Fernando Tatis Jr.'s game-winning homer in the seventh inning at Petco Park. So it should have been one of those weird seventh-inning walk-off homers Correct, except it wasn't any kind of walk-off homer in any inning because the game started in Atlanta. So he hit it in Atlanta. It landed in Petco. I think that's what happened. (laughs) And it wasn't a walk-off. And he also that night hit a home run in both games of a doubleheader, except they were hit in two parks, three time zones, and two months apart. (laughs) On the same day. (laughs) On the same day, somehow. And then there's my favorite thing of all. You know what this is? You got got any kind of guess? It's got to involve time travel, you know. The rain delay. Uh, The rain delay. Because there was a four-hour and eight-minute rain delay in this game in two different parks. The first three hours and three minutes were in Atlanta. Then the 
final one hour and five minutes. <laughs> We're in San Diego. So this was the Padres' first rain delay in San Diego this year, except it happened in Atlanta. Did it, though? <laughs> so, right. Now, that wasn't the next day by the time the four hours elapsed, or was that was it earlier? You know, like because four hours and eight minute delay. Did they resume the oh, next man. day, or that was the yeah, that was not, a, that was well, the early game, right? No, that was the <laughs> second game of the doubleheader in Atlanta that was delayed for three o three. So I, you're yeah. probably right. Probably, right, it spilled to into another and, day. <laughs> so now it's like four days worth of of, of Homer or rain delay. But uh, here's the other thing: I'm not sure if this was the longest rain delay ever in minutes. But it has to be the longest rain delay ever in miles because I, I remember writing about this at the time. This was the first game ever that started in the Eastern time zone and finished in the Pacific time zone. So, Doug, that's all my stuff. What uh, the heck happened? Was that oh, time wow. travel, oh, suspended yeah. animation? How do we describe that? I, I love it. I, I think you've captured something where you're measuring time and distance. I think that's kind of fascinating, as the engineer in Mir loves that stuff. But it takes me to the movie. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the movie Interstellar, but you know you got to check it out. Uh, Ma- Matthew yeah. McConaughey, very good movie, really interesting. And I don't know if you recall, they were looking for kind of spoiler alert. They're looking for an alternate planet for Earth, as things are all these problems are happening, and they send all these astronauts out. And one of the planets was called Miller's Planet. And Miller's Planet was so close to the black hole that time traveled differently or much more slowly than on Earth. So he's calling his son and daughter back on Earth as he's going into Miller's Planet. And they've aged like 25 years. And on Miller's Planet, it was like an hour, right? So so he goes there and and there they something happens where they weren't able to get off right away. And there's this delay. It turned out all this water was there, giant waves. And all the extra time they went to, to achieve this one mission cost them like years on Earth days. So he now realizes how old his kids are. So it feels very Miller Planet-like, the idea that as you get more gravity, time travels more slowly. So I do believe there's a black hole involved in the Padres-Braves <laughs> game. And that time moved very slowly on one hand where you're on the same day for, for months. And so we were effectively on Miller's planet. So I think if we are should, should look something up, we should start creating some unwritten rules about black holes in Major League <laughs> Baseball, and then we'd have no problems. What was the name of this planet? Tatis's uh, planet? Yeah, what was the name of the other? Yeah, might as well call it Tatis's planet. It is his world. I'm, I'm good with that. Okay. We, we are all mixed up. Now you got me thinking, I, how, when did the rain delay start? <laughs> How many days does this thing take? Uh, Too many. Way too many. All right. That's going to do it for this week's show. You can find us every Tuesday right here as part of the Athletic Baseball Show. Monday, it's Ken Rosenthal's Mailbag. Thursday, Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Fridays with Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. It's great stuff all week long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety absolutely free at Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us ad-free at The Athletic and at The Athletic app. So if you like what you hear, we would be greatly appreciative if you would subscribe and give us one of those five-star reviews. And uh, thanks again to all the people who have already done that. 
If you'd like to read our work, there's no better sports writing being done anywhere than in The Athletic. So, if you thought about subscribing, go to theathletic.com slash baseball show, and guess what? That'll give you a link to subscribe for 50% off. Do that. You'll be happy that you did. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. Every week, we invite the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here and prove one more time there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. To do that, you just need to submit a great question. And as we prove today, you can do that by email. Just send it to Starkville at theathletic.com. Or there's always the Twitter road. If somebody was going to travel the Twitter road and tweet at Doug Glanville, how exactly does that work, Doug Glanville? As you know, Twitter is instantaneous. So from a planetary standpoint, very efficient. <laughs> uh, so that would be at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. I love it when Doug spells. So I'm going to spell. I am at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. That's Jason with a Y. S-T. Please remember to hashtag your questions, hashtag StarkvilleQS, and do not answer other people's questions on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Arul Banez for visiting us. Thanks to Josh Garris for the great trivia question. Thanks to the acting mayor of Starkville, Cameron Molina, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Thursday on the Athletic Baseball Show, Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Doug and I will see you next Tuesday on Starkville.